This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Anarcho-Syndicalism, Theory and Practice An Introduction to a Subject Which the Spanish War Has Brought into Overwhelming Prominence By Rudolf Rocker Chapter 6 The Evolution of Anarcho-Syndicalism the modern anarcho-syndicalist movement in Europe, with the single exception of Spain, where from the days of the first international anarcho-syndicalism has always been the dominant tendency in the labor movement, owes its origin to the rise of revolutionary syndicalism in France, with its field of influence in the CGT. This movement developed quite spontaneously within the French working class as a reaction against political socialism, the cleavages in which for a long time permitted no unified trade union movement. After the fall of the Paris Commune and the outlawing of the international in France, the labor movement there had taken on a completely colorless character and had fallen completely under the influence of the bourgeois republican J. Barbaret, whose slogan was, Harmony Between Capital and Labor. Not until the Congress in Marseille, 1879, did any socialist tendencies again manifest themselves and the Fédération des Travailleurs came into being, itself to come quickly and completely under the influence of the so-called collectivists. But even the collectivists did not long remain united, and the Congress of Saint-Étienne, 1882, brought a split in this movement. One section followed the school of the Marxist, Jules Guedes, and founded the Parti Ouvrier Francais, while the other section attached itself to the former anarchist, Paul Bruce, to form the Parti Ouvrier Revolutionnaire Socialiste Francais. The former found its support chiefly in the Fédération Nationale des Syndicats, while the latter had its stronghold in the Fédération des Bruxelles du Travail de France, Federation of Labor Exchanges of France. After a short time, the so-called Alemanes, under the leadership of Jean Aleman, broke away from the Bruxelles and attained a powerful influence in some of the large syndicates. They had given up parliamentary activity completely. Besides these, there were the Blanquis, united in the Comité Révolutionnaire Central, and the independent socialists, who belonged to the Société pour l'économie sociale, which had been founded in 1885 by Benoît Melon, and out of which came both Jean Jurey and Millerand. All of these parties, with the exception of the Alimanes, saw in the trade unions merely recruiting schools for their political objectives, and had no understanding whatever of their real functions. The constant dissension among the various socialist factions were naturally carried over to the syndicates, with the result that when the trade unions of one faction went on strike, the syndicates of the other factions walked in on them as strikebreakers. This untenable situation gradually opened the eyes of the workers, on awakening to which the anti-parliamentary propaganda of the anarchists, who since 1883 had a strong following among the workers in Paris and Lyon, contributed not a little. So the Trade Union Congress at Nantes, 1894, charged a special committee with the task of devising ways and means for bringing about an understanding among all the trade union alliances. The result was the founding in the following year at the Congress in Limoges of the CGT, which declared itself independent of all political parties. It was the final renunciation by the trade unions of political socialism, whose operations had crippled the French labor movement and deprived it of its most effective weapon in the fight for liberation. From there on, there existed only two large trade union groups, the CGT and the Federation of Labor Exchanges, until in 1902, at the Congress of Montpellier, the latter joined the CNT. With this, there was brought about practical unity of the trade unions. This effort at the unification of organized labor was preceded by an intensive propaganda for the general strike, for which the Congresses at Marseille, 1892, Paris, 1893, and Nantes, 1894, had already declared by strong majorities. 
The idea of the general strike was first brought into the trade union movement by the anarchist carpenter, Tortelier, who had been deeply stirred by the general strike movements of the USA in 1886-1887, and it had been later taken up by the Alemannis, while Jules Ged and the French Marxists had emphatically pronounced against it. However, both movements furnished the CNT with a lot of its most distinguished representatives. From the Alemannis came, in particular, V. Griffouls, from the anarchist F. Pelotier, the devoted and highly intelligent secretary of the Federation of Labor Exchanges, E. Pouget, editor of the official organ of the CGT, La Voix de Poupelle, P. De La Salle, G. Iveteau, and many others. One often encounters in other countries the widely disseminated opinion, which was fostered by Werner Sombart in particular, that revolutionary syndicalism in France owes its origins to intellectuals like G. Sorel, E. Berth, and H. Lagardelle, who in the periodical La Mouvement Socialiste, founded in 1899, elaborated in their own way the intellectual results of the new movement. This is utterly false. These men never belonged to the movement themselves, nor had they any mentionable influence in its internal development. Moreover, the CGT was not composed exclusively of revolutionary trade unions. Certainly half of its members were of reformist tendency and had only joined the CGT because they recognized that the dependence of the trade unions on the political parties was a misfortune for the movement. But the revolutionary wing, which had the most energetic and active elements in organized labor on its side, and had its command, moreover, the best intellectual forces in the organization, gave the CGT its characteristic stamp, and it was they, exclusively, who determined the development of the ideas of revolutionary syndicalism. With it, the ideas of the old international wakened to new life, and there was initiated that storm and stress period of the French labor movement whose revolutionary influences made themselves felt far beyond the boundaries of France. The great strike movements and the countless persecutions of the CGT by the government merely strengthened their revolutionary verve, and caused the new ideas to find their way also into Switzerland, Germany, Italy, Holland, Belgium, Bohemia, and the Scandinavian countries. In England, also the Syndicalist Education League, which had been brought into existence in 1910 by Tom Mann and Guy Bowman, and whose teachings exercised a very strong influence, especially among the rank and file of the transport and mining industries, as was revealed in the great strike movements of that period, owed its existence to French syndicalism. The influence of French syndicalism on the international labor movement was strengthened in great degree by the internal crisis which at that time laid hold of nearly all the socialist labor parties. The battle between the so-called revisionists and the rigid Marxists, and particularly the fact that their very parliamentary activities forced the most violent opponents of revisionism of natural necessity to travel and practice the revisionary path, caused many of the more thoughtful element to reflect seriously. Thus it came about that most of the parties found themselves driven by the force of circumstances, often against their will, to make certain concessions to the general strike idea of the syndicalists. Before this, Demela Neuenhuis, the pioneer of the socialist labor movement in Holland, had brought up in the International Congress of Socialists in Brussels, 1891, a proposal for warding off the approaching danger of a war by preparing organized labor for the general strike, a proposal which was most bitterly opposed by Wilhelm Liebknecht in particular. But in spite of this opposition, almost all national and international socialist congresses were subsequently obliged to concern themselves more and more with this question. At the Socialist Congress in Paris in 1899, the future minister, Aristide Briand, argued for the general strike with all his fiery eloquence and succeeded in having an appropriate resolution adopted by the Congress. Even the French Goudis, who had previously been the bitterest foes of the general strike, 
found themselves obliged at the Congress in Lille, 1904, to adopt a resolution favoring it, as they feared they would otherwise lose all their influence with the workers. Of course, nothing was gained by such concessions. The seesaw back and forth between parliamentarism and direct action could only cause confusion. Straightforward men like Domela Neuenhuis and his followers in Holland, and the Alemanes in France, drew the inevitable inference from their new conception of things and withdrew entirely from parliamentary activity. For the others, however, their concessions to the idea of the general strike were merely lip service, with no clear understanding behind it. Whither that led was shown nicely in the case of Briand, who, as a minister, found himself in the tragic comic situation of being obliged to prohibit his own address in favor of the general strike, which the CGT had distributed in pamphlet form by the hundred thousand. Independent of European syndicalism, there developed in the USA the movement of the industrial workers of the world, which was wholly the outgrowth of American conditions. Still, it had in common with syndicalism the methods of direct action and the idea of a socialist reorganization of society by the industrial and agricultural organization of the workers themselves. At its founding congress in Chicago, 1905, the most diverse, radical elements in the American labor movement were represented. Eugene Debs, Bill Haywood, Charles Moyer, Daniel DeLeon, W. Troutman, Mother Jones, Lucy Parsons, and many others. The most important section for a time was the Western Federation of Miners, whose name was known everywhere for its devoted and self-sacrificing labor fights in Colorado, Montana, and Idaho. Since the great movement for the eight-hour day in 1886-87, which came to its tragic conclusion with the execution of the anarchists, Spees, Parsons, Fletcher, Engel, and Ling, on November 11, 1877, the American labor movement had been completely bogged down spiritually. It was believed that by the founding of the IWW, it might be possible to put the movement back on its revolutionary course, an expectation which has thus far not been fulfilled. What chiefly distinguished the IWW from the European syndicalists was its strongly defined Marxist views, which were impressed on it more particularly by Daniel de Leon, while European syndicalists had conspicuously adopted the socialist ideas of the libertarian wing of the First International. The IWW had an especially strong influence on the itinerant workers in the West, but they also gained some influence among factory workers in the eastern states and conducted a great many widespread strikes, which put the name of the Wobblies in everybody's mouth. They took an outstanding part in the embittered battles for the safeguarding of freedom of speech in the western states and made many terrible sacrifices of life and liberty in doing so. Their members filled the jails by thousands. Many were tarred and feathered by fanatical vigilantes or lynched outright. The Everett Massacre of 1916 the execution of the labor poet Joe Hill in 1915, and the Centralia Affair in 1919, and a lot of similar cases in which defenseless workers fell victims, were only a few milestones in the IWW's history of sacrifice. The outbreak of the World War affected the labor movement like a natural catastrophe of enormous scope. After the assassinations at Sarajevo, when everybody felt that Europe was driving under full sail toward a general war, the leaders of the CGT proposed to the leaders of the German trade unions that organized labor in the two countries should take joint action to halt the threatened disaster. But the German labor leaders, who always opposed any direct mass action, and in their long years of parliamentary routine had long since lost every trace of revolutionary initiative, could not be won over to such a proposal. So failed the last chance for preventing the frightful catastrophe. After the war, the peoples faced a new situation. Europe was bleeding from a thousand wounds and writhing, as if in the throes of a fever. In Central Europe, the old regime had collapsed. Russia found herself in the midst of a social revolution of which no one could see the end. 
Of all the events after the war, the occurrences in Russia had impressed the workers in every country most deeply. They felt instinctively that they were in the midst of a revolutionary situation, and that, if nothing decisive came out of it now, all the hopes of the toiling masses would be dispelled for years. The workers recognized that the system, which had been unable to prevent the horrible catastrophe of the World War, but instead for four years had driven the peoples to the slaughter pen, had forfeited its right to existence, and they hailed any effort which promised them a way out of the economic and political chaos which the war had created. For just this reason they placed their highest hopes in the Russian Revolution and thought it marked the inauguration of a new era in the history of the European peoples. In 1919, the Bolshevist Party, which had attained to power in Russia, issued an appeal to the revolutionary workers' organizations in the world and invited them to a congress which was to meet in Russia in the following year to set up a new international. Communist parties existed at that time in only a few countries. On the other hand, there were in Spain, Portugal, Italy, France, Holland, Sweden, Germany, England, and the countries of North and South America syndicalist organizations, some of which exercised a very strong influence. It was, therefore, of deep concern to Lenin and his followers to win these particular organizations, as he had so thoroughly alienated himself from the socialist labor parties that he could scarcely count upon their support. So it came about that, at the Congress for the founding of the Third International in the summer of 1920, almost all of the syndicalist and anarcho-syndicalist organizations were represented. But the impressions which the syndicalist delegates received in Russia were not calculated to make them regard collaboration with the communists as either possible or desirable. The dictatorship of the proletariat was already revealing itself in its worst light. The prisons were filled with socialists of every school, among them many anarchists and anarcho-syndicalists. But above all, it was plain that the new dominant caste was in no way fitted for the task of genuine socialist reconstruction. The foundation of the Third International, with its dictatorial apparatus of organization and its effort to make the whole labor movement of Europe into an instrument of the foreign policy of the Bolshevist state, quickly made plain to the syndicalists that there was no place for them in that organization. But it was very necessary for the Bolshevists, and Lenin in particular, to establish a hold on the syndicalist organization abroad, as their importance, especially in Latin countries, was well known. For this reason, it was decided to set up, alongside the Third International, a separate international alliance of all revolutionary trade unions, in which the syndicalist organizations of all shades could also find a place. The syndicalist delegates agreed to the proposal, and began negotiations with Lasovsky, the commissioner of the Communist International, but he demanded that the new organization should be subordinate to the Third International, and that the syndicates in the several countries should be placed under the leadership of the communist organizations in their countries. This demand was unanimously rejected by the syndicalist delegates. As they were unable to come to an agreement on any terms, it was at last decided to hold an International Trade Union Congress in Moscow the following year, 1921, and to leave the decision of his question to it. In December 1920, an international syndicalist conference convened in Berlin to decide upon an attitude toward the approaching Congress in Moscow. The Congress agreed upon seven points, on the acceptance of which their entrance into the Red Trade Union International was made dependent. The most important of these seven points was the complete independence of the movement from all political parties, and insistence on the viewpoint that the socialist reorganization of society could only be carried out by the economic organizations of the producing classes themselves. At the Congress in Moscow in the following year, the syndicalist organizations were in the minority. The Central Alliance of Russian Trade Unions dominated the entire situation and put through all the resolutions. 
In conjunction with the 13th Congress of the FAUD, Free Arbeiter Union Deutschlands, Free Labor Union of Germany, at Dusseldorf in October 1921, there was held an international organization of syndicalist organizations at which the delegates from Germany, Sweden, Holland, Czechoslovakia, and the IWW in America were present. The conference voted for the calling of an international syndicalist congress in the spring of 1922. Berlin was selected as the meeting place. In July 1922, a conference was held in Berlin to make preparations for this congress. France, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Holland, Spain, and the revolutionary syndicalists in Russia were represented. The Central Alliance of Russian Trade Unions had also sent a delegate who did his best to prevent the calling of the congress, and when he had no success in this, left the congress. The conference worked out a declaration of the principles of revolutionary syndicalism, which was to be laid before the coming Congress for consideration and made all the necessary preparations for making the Congress a success. The International Congress of Syndicalists met in Berlin from December 25, 1922 until January 2, 1923, the following organizations being represented. Argentina by the Federación Obrera Regional Argentina, with 200,000 members. Chile, by the Industrial Workers of the World, with 20,000 members. Denmark, by the Union for Syndicalist Propaganda, with 600 members. Germany, by the Free Arbeiter Union, with 120,000 members. Holland, by the National Arbeids Secretariat, with 22,500 members. Italy, by the Union Sindical Italiana, 500,000 members. Mexico, by the Confederación General de Trabajadores, with 30,000 members. Norway, by the Norse Syndicalistic Federación, with 20,000 members. Portugal, by the Confederación Geral de Trabalho, with 150,000 members. Sweden, by the Sveriges Arbitres Central Organización, with 32,000 members. The Spanish CNT was at that time engaged in a terrific struggle against the dictatorship of Primo de Rivera, and for that reason had sent no delegate, but they reaffirmed their adherence at the secret conference in Saragossa in October 1923. In France, where after the war a split in the CGT had taken place, leading to the founding of the CGTU, the latter had already joined the Muscovites. But there was a minority in the organization which had combined to form the Comité de Défense Syndicaliste Révolutionnaire. This committee, which represented about 100,000 workers, took active part in the proceedings of the Berlin Congress. From France, the Fédération des Funes de la Seine were likewise represented two delegates represented the syndicalist minority of the Russian trade unions. The Congress resolved unanimously on the founding of the International Alliance of All Syndicalist Organizations under the name International Workingmen's Association. It adopted the Declaration of Principles that had been worked out by the Berlin Preliminary Conference, which presented an outspoken profession of anarcho-syndicalism. The second item on the Declaration runs as follows. Quote, Revolutionary syndicalism is the confirmed enemy of every form of economic and social monopoly, and aims at its abolition by means of economic communes and administrative organs of field and factory workers on the basis of a free system of councils, entirely liberated from subordination to any government or political party. Against the politics of the state and of parties, it erects the economic organization of labor. Against the government of men, it sets up the administration of things. Consequently, it has for its object not the conquest of political power, but the abolition of every state function in social life. It considers that, along with the monopoly of property, should disappear also the monopoly of domination, and that any form of the state, including the dictatorship of the proletariat, will always be the creator of new privileges. 
it could never be an instrument of liberation. Unquote. With this, the breach with Bolshevism and its adherents in the separate countries was completed. The IWMA, from then on, traveled its own road and gained a foothold in a number of countries which had not been represented at the founding Congress. It holds its international congresses, issues its bulletins, and adjusts the relations between the syndicalist organizations of the different countries. Among all the international alliances of organized labor, it is the one that has the most faithfully cherished the traditions of the first international. The most powerful and influential organization in the IWMA is the Spanish CNT, which is making history in Europe today and is, moreover, discharging one of the hardest tasks that has ever been set before the workers' organization. The CNT was founded in 1910, and within a few years counted as members over a million workers and peasants. The organization was new only in name, not in objectives or methods. The history of the Spanish labor movement is shot through with long periods of reaction, in which the movement has been able to carry on only an underground existence. But after every such period, it has organized anew. The name changes, but the goal remains the same. The labor movement in Spain goes back to 1840, when the weaver, Juan Muntz, in Catalonia, brought into being, in Barcelona, the first trade union of textile workers. The government of that day sent General Zapatero to Catalonia to put down the movement. The consequence was that the Great General Strike of 1855, which led to an open revolt in which the workers inscribed on their banners the slogan, Asacion o Muerte, the right to organize or death. The rebellion was bloodily suppressed, but the government granted the workers the right of organization. The first movement of the Spanish workers was strongly influenced by the ideas of P. E. Margall, leader of the Spanish Federalists and disciple of Proudhon. P. E. Margall was one of the outstanding theorists of his time and had a powerful influence on the development of libertarian ideas in Spain. His political ideas had much in common with those of Richard Price, Joseph Priestley, Thomas Paine, Jefferson, and other representatives of the Anglo-American liberalism of the first period. He wanted to limit the power of the state to a minimum and gradually replace it by a socialist economic order. In 1868, after the abdication of King Armadeo I, Bakunin addressed his celebrated manifest to the Spanish workers, and sent a special delegation to Spain to win the workers to the First International. Tens of thousands of workers joined the Great Workers' Alliance and adopted the anarcho-syndicalist ideas of Bakunin, to which they have remained loyal to this day. As a matter of fact, the Spanish Federation was the strongest organization in the International. After the overthrow of the First Spanish Republic, the International was suppressed in Spain, but it continued to exist as an underground movement issued its periodicals, and bade defiance to every tyranny. And when, finally, after seven years of unheard-of persecution, the exceptional law against the workers was repealed, there immediately sprang to life the Federación de Trabajadores de la Región Española, at whose second congress in Sevilla, 1882, there were already represented 218 local federations with 70,000 members. No other workers' organization in the world has had to endure such frightful persecution as the anarchist labor movement in Spain. Hundreds of its adherents were executed or horribly tortured by inhuman inquisitors in the prisons of Jerez de la Frontera, Montiunic, Sevilla, Alcala de Valle, and so on. The bloody persecutions of the so-called Mano Negra, Black Hand, which actually never existed, was a pure invention of the government to justify the suppression of the organizations of the field workers in Andalusia. The gruesome tragedy of Montjuic, which in its day roused a storm of protest from the entire world. The acts of terrorism, of the end of the Camisas Blancas, white shirts, 
a gangster organization which had been brought into existence by the police and the employers to clear away the leaders of the movement by assassination, and to which even the general secretary of the CNT, Salvador Segui, fell victim. These are just a few chapters in the long, torture-filled story of the Spanish labor movement. Francisco Ferrer, founder of the modern school in Barcelona and publisher of the paper La Juega General, the General Strike, was one of its martyrs. But no reaction was ever able to crush the resistance of its adherents. That movement has produced hundreds of the most marvelous characters, whose purity of heart and inflexible idealism had to be acknowledged even by their grimmest opponents. The Spanish anarchist labor movement had no place for political careerists. What it had to offer was constant danger, imprisonment, and often death. Only when one has become acquainted with the frightful story of the martyrs of this movement does one understand why it has assumed at certain periods such a violent character in defense of its human rights against the onslaughts of black reactionaries. The present CNT-FAI embodies the old traditions of the movement. In contrast with the anarchists of many other countries, their comrades in Spain, from the beginning, based their activities on the economic fighting organizations of the workers. The CNT today embraces a membership of two and a half million workers and peasants. It controls 36 daily papers, among them Solidaridad Obrera in Barcelona, with a circulation of 240,000, the largest of any paper in Spain, and Castilla Libre, which is the most read paper in Madrid. Besides these, the movements put out a lot of weekly publications and possesses six of the best reviews in the country. During the last year in particular, it has published a large number of excellent books and pamphlets and has contributed more to the education of the masses than has any other movement. The CNT-FAI is, today, the backbone of the heroic struggle against fascism in Spain and the soul of the social reorganization of the country. In Portugal, where the labor movement has always been strongly influenced by neighboring Spain, there was formed in 1911 the Confederacao Geral de Trabalho, the strongest workers' organization in the country, representing the same principles as the CNT in Spain. It has always sharply stressed its independence of all political parties, and has conducted a lot of big strike movements. By the victory of the dictatorship in Portugal, the CGT was forced out of public activity and today leads an underground existence. The recent disturbances in Portugal, directed against the existing reaction, are chiefly traceable to its activities. In Italy, there always existed, from the days of the First International, a strong anarchist movement which, in certain sections of the country, retained a decisive influence over the workers and peasants. In 1902, the Socialist Party founded the Confederación del Lavoro, which was patterned after the model of the German trade unions and had for its purpose the affiliation of all the trade union organizations of the country. But it never attained this goal. It was not even able to prevent a large part of its membership from being strongly influenced by the ideas of the French syndicalists. A few big and successful strikes, especially in the farm laborer strike in Parma and Ferreira, gave a strong impetus to the prestige of the advocates of direct action. In 1912, there convened in Modena a conference of various organizations which were not at all in accord with the methods of the Confederation and its subservience to the influence of the Socialist Party. This conference formed a new organization under the name Unione Sindical Italiana. This body was the soul of a long list of severe labor struggles up to the outbreak of the World War. In particular, it took a prominent part in the occurrences of the so-called Red Week in June 1913. The brutal attacks of the police on striking workers in Ancona led to general strike, which in a few provinces developed into an armed insurrection. When, in the following year, the World War broke out, a serious crisis arose in the USI. The most influential leader of the movement, Alceste de Ambriz, who had all the time played a rather ambiguous role, tried to rouse the organization a sentiment for the war. 
At the Congress in Parma, 1914, however, he found himself in the minority and, with his followers, withdrew from the movement. Upon Italy's entrance into the war, all the known propagandists of the USI were arrested and imprisoned until the end of the war. After the war, a revolutionary situation developed in Italy, and the events in Russia, whose actual significance could, at that time, of course, not be foreseen, roused a vigorous response in the country. The USI, in a short time, awoke to new life and soon counted 600,000 members. A series of serious labor disturbances shook the country, reaching their peak in the occupation of the factories in August 1920. Its goal at that time was a free Soviet system, which was to reject any dictatorship and find its basis in the economic organizations of organized labor. In that same year, the USI sent its secretary, Armando Borghi, to Moscow to acquaint himself personally with the situation in Russia. Borghi returned to Italy sadly disillusioned. In the interim, the communists had been trying to get the USI into their hands, but the Congress at Rome in 1922 led to an open break with Bolshevism and the affiliation of the organization with the IWMA. Meanwhile, fascism had developed into an immediate danger. A strong and united labor movement that was determined to risk everything in defense of its freedom could still have put a check upon this danger, but the pitiful conduct of the Socialist Party and the Confederation of Labor, which was subject to its influence, wrecked everything. Besides the USI, there remained only the Unione Anarchica Italiana to rally round the universally revered champion of Italian anarchism, Enrico Malatesta. When in 1922 the general strike against fascism broke out, the democratic government armed the fascist hordes and throttled this last attempt at the defense of freedom and right. But Italian democracy had dug its own grave. It thought it could use Mussolini as a tool against the workers, but it thus became its own gravedigger. With the victory of fascism, the whole Italian labor movement disappeared, and along with it the USI, and all openness in social life. In France, after the war, the so-called reformist wing had gained the upper hand in the CGT, whereupon the revolutionary elements seceded and formed themselves in the CGTU. But, since Moscow had a very strong interest in getting this particular organization into its hands, there was started in it an unscrupulous underground activity in cells after the Russian pattern, which went so far that in 1922, two anarcho-syndicalists were shot down by communists in the Paris Trade Union House. Thereupon, the anarcho-syndicalists, with Pierre Bernard, withdrew from the CGTU and formed the Confederation Générale du Travail Syndicaliste Révolutionnaire, which joined the International Workingmen's Association. This organization has since then been vigorously active and has contributed greatly to keep alive among the workers the old pre-war ideas of the CGT, the disillusionment over Russia, and, above all, the resounding echo among the French workers of the Spanish fight for freedom, led to a strong revival of the revolutionary syndicalism in France, so that one can safely count on a rebirth of the movement within the predictable time. In Germany, there had existed for a long time before the war the movement of the so-called localists, whose stronghold was the Freie Verengung Deutscher Gewerkschaften, founded by G. Kessler and F. Cater in 1897. This organization was originally inspired by purely social democratic ideas, but it combated the centralizing tendencies of the general German trade union movement. The revival of revolutionary syndicalism in France had a strong influence on this movement, and this was notably strengthened when the former social democrat and later anarchist Dr. R. Freideberg came out for the general strike. In 1908, the FVDG broke completely with social democracy and openly professed syndicalism. After the war, this movement took a sharp upswing, and in a short time counted 120,000 members. At its congress in Berlin in 1919, the Declaration of Principles worked out by R. Rocker was adopted. This was in essential agreement with the objectives of the Spanish CNT. 
At the Congress in Dusseldorf, 1920, the organization changed its name to the Freie Arbeiterunion Deutschlands. The movement carried on an unusually active propaganda and took an especially energetic part in the great actions by organized labor in the Rhenish industrial field. The FAUD rendered a great service through the tireless labors of its active publishing house, which, in addition to a voluminous pamphlet literature, brought out a large number of longer works by Kropotkin, Bakunin, Netlau, Rocker, and others, and by this activity spread the libertarian ideas of these men to wider circles. The movement, in addition to its weekly organ, Der Syndicaliste, and the theoretical monthly, Die Internationale, had, at its command, a number of local sheets, among them the daily newspaper Die Schupfung, in Dusseldorf. After Hitler's accession to power, the movement of the German anarcho-syndicalists vanished from the scene. A great many of its supporters languished in concentration camps or had to take refuge abroad. In spite of this, the organization still exists in secret, and under the most difficult conditions carries on its underground propaganda. In Sweden, there has existed for a long time a very active syndicalist movement, the Svarej Arbitaris Central Organas Hon, which is affiliated with the IWMA. This organization numbers over 40,000 members, which constitutes a very high percentage of the Swedish labor movement. The internal organization of the Swedish syndicalists is in very excellent condition. The movement has two daily papers, one of them, Arbitaren, managed by Albert Jensen in Stockholm. It has at its disposal a large number of distinguished propagandists, and has also inaugurated a very active syndicalist youth movement. The Swedish syndicalists take a strong interest in all the worker struggles in the country. When, on the occasion of the Great Strike of Adelen, the Swedish government for the first time sent militia against the workers, five men being shot down in the affray, and the Swedish organized workers replied with a general strike, the syndicalists played a prominent part, and the government was at last compelled to make concessions to the protest movement of the workers. In Holland, as syndicalist movement, there was the National Arbiter Secretariat, NAS, which counted 40,000 members. But when this came steadily more and more under communist influence, the Nederlandish Syndicalistisch Vakverband split off from it and announced its affiliation with the IWMA. The most important unit in this new organization is the Metalworkers Union under the leadership of A. Rousseau. The movement has carried on, especially in recent years, a very active propaganda, and possesses in De Syndicalist, edited by Albert de Jong, an excellent organ, and the monthly Gronslagen which appeared for a few years under the editorship of A. Mueller-Lenning, deserves also to be mentioned here. Holland has been, from of old, the classic land of anti-militarism. Domela Neuenheis, former priest and later anarchist, highly respected by everyone for his pure idealism, in 1904 founded the Anti-Militarist International, which, however, had influence worth mentioning only in Holland and France. At the Third Anti-Militarist Congress at The Hague, 1921, the International Anti-Militarist Bureau Against War and Reaction was founded, which, for the past 16 years, has carried on an extremely active international propaganda and has found able and unselfish representatives in men like B. Deligat and Albert de Jong. The Bureau was represented at a number of international peace congresses and put out a special press service in several languages. In 1925, it allied itself with the IWMA through the International Anti-Military Committee and in association with the organization, carries on a tireless struggle against the reaction and peril of new wars. In addition to these, there exist anarcho-syndicalist propagandist groups in Norway, Poland, and Bulgaria, which are affiliated with the IWMA. Likewise, the Japanese Jiu Rengo Dante Zenkoko Kaigi had entered into formal alliance with the IWMA. In South America, especially in Argentina, the most advanced country on the southern continent, 
the young labor movement was from the very beginning strongly influenced by the libertarian ideas of Spanish anarchism. In 1890, to Buenos Aires, from Barcelona, came Pelicer Pereiro, who had lived through the time of the First International and was one of the champions of libertarian socialism in Spain. Under his influence, a Congress of Trade Unions convened in Buenos Aires in 1891, from which arose the Federación Obrera Argentina, which at its fourth Congress changed its name to the Federación Obrera Regional Argentina. The FORA has carried on since then without interruption, even though its efficiency was often, as it is again today, disturbed by periods of reaction, and it was driven to underground activity. It is an anarchist trade union organization, and it was the soul of all the great labor struggles which have so often shaken that country. The FORA began its activity with 40,000 members, which number has grown since the World War to 300,000. Its history, which A.D. de Citoyen has sketched in his work F.O.R.A., is one of the most battle-filled chapters in the annals of the international labor movement. For over 25 years, the movement had a daily paper, La Protesta, which under the editorship of Santillan and Arango, for years published a weekly supplement to which the best minds of international libertarian socialism contributed. The paper was suppressed after the coup d'etat of General Uribura, but it continues to appear in an underground edition even today, even if not quite daily. Moreover, almost every considerable trade union had its own organ. The FORA early joined the IWMA, having been represented at its founding congress by two delegates. In May 1929, the FORA summoned a congress of all the South American countries to meet in Buenos Aires. To it, the IWMA sent from Berlin its corresponding secretary, A. Sushi. At this congress, besides the FORA of Argentina, there were represented Paraguay by the Centro Obrero del Paraguay, Bolivia by the Federación Local de la Paz, La Antorca, and Luz y Libertad, Mexico by the Confederación General de Trabajadores, Guatemala by the Comité Pro Acción Sindical, Uruguay by the Federación Regional Uruguaya, from Brazil, trade unions from seven of the constituent states were represented. Costa Rica was represented by the organization Asia La Libertad. Even the Chilean IWW sent representatives, although since the dictatorship of Ibanez has been able to carry on only underground activities. At this Congress, the Continental American Workingmen's Association was brought into existence, constituting the American division of the IWMA. The seat of this organization was at first in Buenos Aires, but later, because of the dictatorship, it had to be transferred to Uruguay. These are the forces which anarcho-syndicalism at present has at its disposal in the several countries. Everywhere, it has to carry on a difficult struggle against reaction, as well as against the conservative elements in the present labor movement. Through the heroic battle of the Spanish workers, the attention of the world is today directed to this movement, and its adherents are firmly convinced that a great and successful future lies before them. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.